We're back. Hi, everybody. You're listening to the Blue Toddcast. My name is Todd Bluebaugh, and this podcast is about many excellent things, and I'm glad to have you. Usually we talk about motorcycles and photography and everything in between. Uh, Those are kind of my specialties. But today, I am going to be talking with Tony Patella. And I'm excited for you guys to hear this conversation. He is the Tella and Tella son. The son is Pete Searson, who I'd be excited to have on this show as soon as that's possible. But today we have Tony, and I'm excited for you guys to hear that conversation because I've learned a lot from this guy over the years, from both those guys. And before we get to that, let me just tell you how this show works. It's completely funded by the store on my website. So, for now, I'm trying to avoid any type of advertising, and I'm just collaborating with brands who I think are genuine and authentic and have the the right approach to what they do, and offering some goods through them that are designed particularly for my lifestyle and the lifestyle I share with people like myself, I think is a good way to go about uh, funding the show because you guys get an option for some finer goods made here in the U.S. ethically, sustainably, which I'm very proud of. Uh, my collaborations with Tellison over the years and with Wesco have meant a lot to me and I'm very proud of all those items on the store and I think you'll really enjoy them too. My book is also for sale on there. Go check that out. I am releasing a t-shirt very soon when those come in that I designed as as a, a fun sales item there on the website. I think you'll enjoy the art on that. And also, wait, did I say my book's for sale? I think I did. <laughs> Sorry, it's been a, it's been a, I think I switched over to decaf accidentally or something. Or this, this blonde coffee from Guatemala or or wherever it is from just doesn't quite have the kick I'm used to so I apologize I may repeat myself a few times but uh, I'm also excited about the jacket we're about to release with Telesin that has been this same supply line story of everything else just like the boots we have been delayed in releasing this thing for so long but this is not a pre-sale item so when we get them we have them and you can order them And we're not getting them all at once because we kind of had to expedite a number of those jackets. So when they do show up, get one um, while you can before the rest of them trickle in. Just just giving you a heads up. But that reminds me, the boots, uh, the, the engineer boots with Wesco are coming. They are, all the items are in place now and cut and being sewn, which means... It's all coming together. But to get here, it has been such an uphill battle with the COVID, with the quarantining, with the ports of uh, the Northwest and everywhere else in the world. This is a global problem. And I just want to reach out and say thank you to everybody who ordered the boots, expecting to have gotten them a long time ago. You've been incredibly patient 
as customers. And Chris and I over there at Wesco just want to let you know that that means a lot to us. And it really shows that our customers care a lot. And those are the people we want involved in our business. So thank you. And our apologies for the delay, but they are coming and they are worth it. So thank you again, guys. You just We just couldn't have seen that coming. Okay, I think that's out of the way. Yes, today's conversation. Tony Patella, like an amazing human, is always, from the day I met the guy, which has been 10 years now, him and Tony both, or him and Pete both, in Seattle, we really hit it off. And I've been trying to think recently because it just it occurred to me that it was 10 years recently. It's Time has flown. But I think our conversations to me were, were that of what I have in the custom world with the attention to detail and process involved and the things that really matter. These aren't just optics, though that is important. The design of something, the fit, but the process in which it's made, the care it's given, the ethics involved. And when you listen to Tony talk today, it's going to be insightful because it, it still is for me. He'll drop these, these little factoids on me about the process in which denim is made or the history of that and anything that goes upstream in the process and I go oh man never thought of that that would have never occurred to me but I love those little easter eggs in our conversations and I've learned a lot from him and Pete over the years and to be honest with you I just I haven't had I mean I've been very lucky because I have had some important people that believe in what I'm doing but these guys have really shown it and supported me. And that's meant a lot. Um, that's meant a lot. And it's enabled me to do more than I ever could have done without them. These overlaps that we share with people are... They're where it's at. The things you do alone, sure, there's a lot of credibility in that. But when it's shared and... I guess experienced with another person or it's more meaningful. It's just, I don't feel like I'm out there doing this alone because I got guys like them and Wesco supporting me now, which has been, been a long run for me. <laughs> it's been over 20 years of trying and I've gotten to the gates many times, but, um, you know, without a certain level of influence in this world, I, I, I just don't, I don't get to the next level, and those guys have always helped me get to the next level. So this show is a collaboration with them, and it's not just me. It's also Rocco DeLuca, who writes all the music for this show, on a cuff on a little tiny tape recorder from the 1960s, just playing over live footage. It's very special, and... Tellison, it, it very much embodies the way Tellison does things. It's just him, it's just Pete, and it's Tony. And anytime you get an email or a phone call from them, it's because it's just those two guys there in the warehouse making it all happen. And it takes a lot of wherewithal to 
to kind of knock down all the hurdles in life that keep you from doing something like this. And those hurdles will come over and over again. Believe me, they just continually come. Those setbacks, not even in business, but just in life. And when your life, where your business is your life, your life is your business, those setbacks, they can be fatal for some. But Pete and Tony have seen it through, and their company is amazing. Their products are amazing. I'm wearing them right now. I wear them every day. And that's the thing with denim. It's, how do I put it? It's the vehicle you wear to get shit done. It's a uniform for me. I put this stuff on and I know that I'm going to go get some shit done. And it feels good and it feels right. Anyway, I could go on and on, but let's just get to the conversation with Tony. uh, Partly because my wife just pulled up from doing deliveries from her baked goods business. (laughs) So, (laughs) I've babbled on enough. Tony Patella, buckle up. Check, check. Try that. Let me hear. River. Can, can you hear my voice? And I can hear yours? All right. We're good, man. Let me check our levels. Yeah, keep an eye on that. Yeah, check, check, check. Give me check, a check. Check, check, check. Yeah, we're good, man. So, uh, it's crazy, but it dawned on me after last night. I think it's probably this year would be 10 years since I met you guys. Yeah. It's true. It's been a decade. It has because uh, that thing in Seattle where we met, that was in year two or three of Telesign. That had to be 2011 or 2013, or 2012. I think it was 2011. I think so. So two years in. Yeah. Yeah. Time fucking flies, man. It does. I got to tell you, I learned a lot in that last 10 years between you and Pete. Many pants later. Many pants. Actually, not that many. Yeah. As it should be. As it should be. Yeah. Um, I know we don't have much time. That mic is directional, so when you you aim it a little bit, like it'll, you'll be able to do your vo- like hear your voice okay. properly when you're. Let's go. I'll keep it like this. You can almost you can almost uh, control the volume where where you're at. There. Yeah, I love when people breathe into the mic. <laughs> so in uh, in ten years, where you where you think you're going next? I don't know, man. I mean, it's it's hard to say where the customer base will be. Yeah. You know, we Pete and I always talk about trying to convert one guy at a time to the way we believe people should buy products. And we feel like if one guy gets it, he'll tell his friends. Yeah. And he'll tell his friends. And eventually more and more people will get it where they'll buy things that are meant to last a long time and be repaired before replaced so that there's less of an impact on environment by just buying things you have to replace every six months or whatever i don't think people i wouldn't have known if you wouldn't have told me the impact that that just something as simple as denim has yeah i mean not even talking about the amount of water it takes to grow cotton right process cotton for garment use we feel like we do what we can by selling the kind of denim we do which is not water or chemical or tool treated at all after it's been sewn and also, given the kind of people that buy our product, they don't necessarily wash their jeans that often either, which is a good thing. That's reality. a good point. Yeah. So that's what we can do, you know. Um, but it's more about just the the fact that most people buy jeans that are half dead or 50 
to 100% dead almost. Because in order for a pair of brand new jeans, all jeans that come off the sewing line everywhere in the world are sewn with raw denim and come off the line looking like ours do when they're put in a box and sent to somebody. The problem is, is that 99.99% or more, amazingly, jeans get treated with chemicals, water, tools, many of that not good for the worker or the environment, um, to have this sort of fake patina put to them. We gobble that up. No, but the thing is, is that, you know, if people realize the impact that that has, not even talking about the environment right now, but talking about the worker. Sure. In a lot, in most places where denim, where jeans are produced, 100% of them are chemically treated, water treated with a lot of water and a lot of chemicals. And the worker has no choice because they live in a place where they take whatever job they can get. Sure. And the only thing you can do as a consumer to help that is to not buy so much of it so that demand goes down and maybe they can transition in those places to making things that don't harm the worker. But people, I I don't think, I don't think people understand when you, if you just walk down the street and look at everybody wearing a pair of jeans, like the last thing that goes through their head is like, oh, this would be bad if I buy this pair and not this pair for someone else. Right. You know, but uh, I think they would care if they knew. Right. And that's not just in this industry, obviously. It's in every industry and everything people consume. Um, you know, and, but we also, Pete and I fully realized when we started this, before we started this, the way we want to do things, the way we do do things is not for everybody. That's why I said one guy at a time. Yeah. Because you can't convince the masses to go this way. They don't, they don't care or want because it takes work. You know, I mean, as I've said a million times, jeans like ours, they're not worth it if you don't wear them. They're expensive. They're expensive for a legit reason, but you know, it's like if you're not going to use them, you might be off better buying something else that is less expensive. You worked for a lot of companies. When you started out, were you kind of blind to that too? Did that sink in at a certain point where you're like, man, we could do something a little different here? It's not like we invented this way of doing things, but we always appreciated brands in every category that did do things this way. Right. You know, I mean, the prime example that a lot of people can relate to is someone like Red Wing, mm-hmm. you know, where, yeah, they have two ranges. They have the Made in Minnesota in Red Wing, Minnesota line, which costs, you know, let's say 250 a pair. But they're made in the U.S. with beautiful leather that they tan themselves. And then when you need to, you can send them to them and they'll refurbish them and replace the sole. And then you have like almost a better than new pair because they're broken in on the top, but you have a brand new sole. So we've always liked to use that as an analogy. And it's the same thing with proper denim. Like when I said before that, you know, most jeans that are sold and bought by consumers worldwide are already dead. It's because for our pair of jeans to, to look that hammered, it takes a year plus of hard wear. So to buy a quote-unquote new pair that's already there, it's like buying a new car at full price that has 50,000 miles on it and dents. It's it's obscene. you know. <laughs> I mean, it really is. It's like, what are, it's like buying pre-chewed food. <laughs> I just don't, you know, it's just a, it's, if people would think about it, and all those people you said walking down the street and the choices they make, I mean, if they would actually think about how that product arrived in that condition when they bought it, they would realize they're buying a used product. That's a good point. And it's just, I mean, I don't like that kind of thing, you know? I, 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 I honestly didn't think about it until until I got a pair of Telesons, which was a big deal for me. To, to You know, to spend that much money on a, on a pair of jeans when I was used to spending, whatever, $40.00 from a department yeah. store. Uh, but the one thing that I noticed in the shop, 
particularly working with metal fragments and uh you know my do i was doing a lot of tig welding back then and so my torch hangs over my shoulders and a lot of times that tungsten's still hot and it'll hit your leg it'll burn these patterns of holes in your jeans so all my jeans would blow out in that point where that was hitting i wore your pair of jeans in the shop for a good six or seven months and that never happened I was like, what the fuck? Is, this, is, this is kind of amazing. Plus, they took on a life of their own. Yeah. Uh, so the proof was in the pudding, but had I never given them the chance, I probably would have never known the difference. Again, that's why all we can do is try to convert one guy at a time because they'll have a similar experience, in my opinion. Yeah. Um, you know, it's again, we know it's not for everybody because most people don't want to put their work in. You know, and it does take work. It's like when you buy your first pair of let's say proper dress shoes you're forced to wear them five days a week for work if you have that type of job yeah they take a while to break in that's a new do, shoe blues feel great. Yeah. yeah but you know what i mean it's like it's like anything i guess and um for some reason in the world of blue jeans you know this whole thing of like pajama jeans basically i call them ballet pants yeah you know they're like, like i i just yesterday i had a friend that but i he tried these on i was at his house i was helping him out on something i was like try these on put them on and and he was like what the fuck, dude? These are, it's like armor. Yeah. I'm like, yeah, it's a different than that stretch paper. And a lot of that has to do with the fact, obviously, they're unprocessed. But also, the kind of yarns that are used to weave better denim are double ring spun, so they're stronger. And also, in the case of our black denim or our 16 and a half ounce especially, there's a lot of wax and starch in the finish. That's what causes the rigidity. Yeah. Because the weight of the fabric refers to what one square yard weighs. So the difference between like a 15-ounce jean and a 16-ounce jean is not that much in weight, but it's more about what do you want to put into it. So we've designed our three fabrics to have different characteristics, mm -hmm. and the 16 and a half has the most wax and starch in the finish so that it's really rigid, and it, it, it has that invincibility to it. Yeah. Even though in reality, uh, it's not that much heavier than the 14.75 in weight, just more rigid. Right. That's I think that's what turns people off at first. Yeah, of course. Uh, but... It breaks down. Give it a week. Well, the, it, in order for the gene to become your unique pair, because a pair that you, like if you and your friend you were talking about got a brand new pair, the same size, let's say, yeah, and wore them for six months each, and they met up, your pair would fit him differently than his pair, and his pair would fit you differently than your personal pairs do because they mold your body. And part of that ability comes from the rigidity and the unprocessed nature of the fabric. Yeah, that's how it can mold your body. I have to warn people when they do this. Like, this is a ha this is habit forming. Like, yeah. you don't go back. Right. You don't. You don't. You can't put an old pair of of ballet pants back on. No, because eventually the pair that you bought, like this, and worn for a year and a half, will become your quote unquote comfortable yeah. soft jeans. But yeah. you got to put the work in. That's yeah. the thing, you know. And unfortunately. Or fortunately, who knows? But it's just a lot of people aren't willing to do that. We love our convenience. Yeah. And it's killing us. Yeah. I talked about this on the last episode, I think. It was just like, we're obsessed with, with conveniencing ourselves in every way to the point now where, I mean, it's it's working. Like, we don't even have to leave the house to go get groceries anymore, right. which is a little... I like to pick my own groceries. I like to pick my own groceries. Yeah. Yeah, and I know, I'm not saying that to, like, I think it's pretty awesome that, let's say, an elderly community or something like that can have access, like an, an access to a service, like that is convenient and that is good. But uh, 
it's also kind of killing us socially no and it, you know you watch tv and all these ads are about are you super frazzled are you overworked do you not have enough time and mm. they show kids in the background throwing shit at each other and dishwashers leaking and all this use instacart someone else will take care of your shopping for you i'm like is life really like that I, maybe it is for other people it's not like that for me <laughs> no definitely not like that for, not out here either <laughs> by any means i mean the grocery store is a 20 is 20 mile round trip yeah. So it's it's not convenient, but there's some days where I look forward to that. You know, it's kind of a reward to go down there. Exactly. Yeah, I just I think that more people would be turned on to. Would you call us a heritage kind of? Uh, the only reason it's considered, in my opinion, heritage is because it's made the way things used to be made. It's not trying to be a replication of a 1940s gene that someone found in a mine or whatever. Right, right. It's just about doing things the old way and part of that starts with the fabric. Yeah. I mean as But I the told, durability is a is a part of the heritage too. Right. Because back in the day people bought things for utility. If it didn't last, they wouldn't buy it again and the company would be gone. You know? That that whole mentality of like, oh yeah, I'm willing to pay a price for something that will last me and I get utility out of and use. Yes. And durability is built into it. Okay, I get why it costs what it costs. But somewhere along the line people are like, ah I'll just get another pair. Oh, they're only 20 bucks. I'll get another, whatever. You know, it's just like, I don't know. I just don't like having a lot of stuff in my life. I like less stuff, but better stuff, you know? Yeah. Um, and one thing I was going to mention when you were talking about, like a, you used to buy $40 jeans at department stores, whatever. I mean, the interesting thing about that is that everyone involved in the process of making those jeans, whether it's the mill, the factory, the brand, blah, blah, blah. Everyone's margin is the same percentage wise. It's just that, the way we do it, everything costs so much more, whether it be the fabric itself, the usage of the fabric because it's so narrow, the cost of the fabric because it's made on really inefficient antique looms. Right. They can only make five yards per hour. And then the sewing factory, is it's in San Francisco. I mean, can you find a more expensive place? You're paying a living wage to people. Yeah, and also yeah. it's really important to me because we could make the jeans in L.A. They'd still be made in California. They'd still be made, still be made in the U.S., but San Francisco is the home of blue jeans. Yeah. It's where we are. And I'm like, I don't want to see the blue jeans business go away where all you have now is Levi headquartered there, Gap headquartered there. I thought the Levi, didn't you say the Levi headquartered closed? No, no. They had a factory in San Francisco that they closed oh. back in the 90s, Yeah, unfortunately. But their headquarters are still there. Their headquarters base there, are still so there. So is Gap. Yeah. And so basically they're- Their headquarters are there, but they have no factory there? No, exactly. And they, oh they my cash God. checks and whatever, but they're not making anything there. And- it, in reality, the factory that makes our jeans and a few other brands in San Francisco is the last remaining blue jeans factory in the home of blue jeans. Oh, my God. That's, so, yeah. you know, when Pete and I got, you know, got the idea to start Telesin in 19, no, it must have been 2009, 2008, we started talking about 2009, we put it, our first pair out there. Mm-hmm. Um, the first thing, even before wondering if Cohen Mills White Oak was still in existence, I wasn't sure because I'd been out of denim for years. Well, it's not now. Now I know, but um, (laughs) was was the factory in San Francisco that I knew from back in the '90s still around? And if that was the first call I made, I'm like, "Hey, it's Tony. Remember me? Are you still making jeans? Yeah. Okay, let's talk. You know. Then the next call was to Cone. White Oak still in business? Yeah. Okay, let's. I'll be over right over. You know, like had White Oak not existed, then we still would have started the brand and been buying Japanese denim like everyone else did. But fortunately, it existed, and we got 10 years out of it. Actually, I should take that back, because what you just told me last night, they are still going in a way. In a way. I mean, it's uh, it's it's a project that 
some really passionate people in Greensboro. They refer to Greensboro's Jeansboro. Mm. Um, really passionate people who, A, had friends and family that worked at Cone Mills, White Oak, or had friends and family that worked in some of the White, White Oak suppliers of other components that they used. Uh, got a hold of two of the looms from White Oak that make salvage denim, and the guy who bought White Oak and basically, you know, made it a shell of itself now. I think it's a Walmart distribution center, if I'm not mistaken. But he gave him some space in that same building to set up the two looms they own. And they're in the process of weaving some denim, and we're one of the companies that's going to make their inaugural run of jeans. Another another guy's making some jackets out of the fabric. That's and, really exciting. And it's going to be pretty amazing. And they rehired some former White Oak employees to run these two looms because call it a comeback hey well i'll take it you know yeah. what i mean like I, I mean i don't know what their capacity is going to be over time but i'm really happy to see a couple people that work on these looms for decades this one woman i've seen interviewed about it worked there for 30 years and her mom worked there so they know they know these looms back and forth that's amazing front to back and they're the they're gonna obviously put everything they have into making a beautiful fabric so We'll have something to put out there with what's called the White Oak Legacy Foundation probably in six to ten weeks. Did you say it was a nonprofit too? It's a nonprofit. What a passionate fucking... Yeah, and they're just trying to keep the trade alive in their... What, in say their it again. What, what was it called? White Oak Legacy Foundation. Do they have like a website up and stuff like that? Yeah. I know they have an Instagram and they, they all, it's all under, under the term called Proximity Mill. Mm-hmm. So White Oak Legacy Foundation is sort of the over the overseer of the whole thing and then proximity mill is who's making the fabric with those two looms but they're they're interconnected uh-huh. uh, it's called proximity mill because that's what cone mills original mills were called in greensboro before they even opened white oak because oh. white oak was opened in 1905 but was the mill opened there just because of its location it's like its proximity to cotton itself yeah, I mean, manufacturing all there was some there in the northeast of the u.s there was a few mills back in the day but yeah primarily that area is more of a shoemaking area right mm. and in the south obviously close to where cotton's grown so even today there's still um in georgia and a few other places some canvas being made some some denim but not on old looms like this mm-hmm. more commodity kind of stuff but yeah with, originally the, all the textile business in the u.s was in the south east because that's where i mean the last thing you want to do is like you know have your denim mill in seattle but all the cotton comes from Georgia, right? Yeah, across yeah, the country yeah, doesn't yeah. make any sense. Where where does denim come from? That's a, where, where did it really originate from? There's there's a couple. I mean, the, the, you know, there's so many raging arguments about the arguments about this. Some say it's from Genoa, Italy. The term jeans, mm. not necessarily made. The fabric wasn't made for use in pants. It was used for sail sailcloth and things like that for boats. Uh-huh. Then there's the Denim, Nîmes, Nîmes, France. Tenue Denim is a store named after that in Amsterdam, but it was called Denim, mm-hmm. Fabric Denim. So they're all fighting for the the who origin. Knows what's story. true? It's, no one's alive that was around back then, so who knows? You know. Right, but it's been around a long time. Long time, you know. And it just turns out that it's a really durable fabric for workwear, you know. And and for most of its life as a garment material, it was used for workwear. When know? when was its when was its big debut it, in America? I think I think it became a fashion thing, as we all know it now. Yeah. And I say fashion in that it's worn by people that aren't doing hard work. Most people, 
like most people. No, no one does hard work anymore. Right. But, um, <laughs> I but, shouldn't uh, say that. That's no, what of course, that's not true. Yeah. But, um, but, you know, I think the thing I sticks out in my mind is when you would see, like, pictures of Brando wearing it with a white T-shirt. Oh, yeah. Back in the yeah. Day. Wild ones. Yeah. The thing I love about and what really attracted me to denim was it's it's one of those things where if you, you know, on a daily basis, you'll see I'll be wearing, like, a black or white T-shirt, a pair of, you know, raw denim jeans and a Red Wings or Chucks, you know? Yeah. Basically. Timeless. It's I have pictures of my dad from the fifties wearing the same thing. Right. You know, so it's one of those things that you look back on your life and go, I don't regret that at all because it's been <laughs> going on for so long and it's never it's timeless. You know, it's just never you don't look like a kook. Yeah, I think know? about that a lot in graphic design yeah. and in illustration because there's a lot of trends that happen in those, but the ones that we always return to, uh, they just have the fundamentals down. Yeah. And you and it's hard to place. You know. That's stylistically, true. and I think a lot of a lot of the things that you're talking about, and include including the, you know, jeans, specifically raw denim, is that it it just happened organically. It wasn't like the first pair was oh well, 50 years from now these are going to be worn by people on the runway. Or, true, yeah, it was it was, just, it was all about a utility. Exactly, exactly, um, and that's why I said earlier those are the best things. Yes, the things that I value the most are the things I use the most, like. What I get the most use out of, and the, and then are durable. Those are the things I care about. Yeah. Everything else is temporary. I I don't have anything in my life that isn't like that. Right. Honestly, it's all I'm trying to get this water open. Sorry. Ah. Dying of thirst, man. It's the yeah. desert. Yeah. I don't think have anything in my life anymore that doesn't have a utility. Yeah. Like even my recreation, it's, it's pretty utilitarian. From, you know, the motorcycles, I still get around. And and this goes, this is kind of, I think, one of the things that really I appreciated about the Telson fit and the Telson uh, design was that it wasn't a, I've told you before, it's it doesn't feel like you're desperately trying to recreate something. It's, there's, there's a... There's a modernization to something proven. Yeah, I think that's just the personality. It's not a costume party. No, exactly, but I think yeah. that just fits the personality of me and Pete. By nature, we're both minimalists. You know, there's a lot of things you can do to a product that are unnecessary for certain reasons, but why do it? Yeah. You know, why? I mean, it's just, if it's not important, it doesn't add something of true value to the product, then why put it on there? Yeah. Why complicate it? You know, I always, we talked about it last night at dinner, like the things that I value the most as far as you know, meals and favorite dishes are the simplest things. Yeah. You know, pizza margarita. I'll take yeah. that any day over any other pizza. I know there's good pizza that have other toppings, but I just want the simplicity of the three ingredients, basically. You know, so I can taste all of them individually and appreciate them, but they have to be good. You know? Yeah. So it's the same thing with... You're a refined man, Tony. No, I'm a simple man. I feel like, well, simple man. You, you have refined your taste to the simplest yes. equations. Because that's, I mean... Is that what you and Pete came together on? How'd you guys meet? Pete and I met, it's odd, we're 15 days apart in age. Okay. I grew up in Northern California. Yeah, you're both seven feet tall. That's true. <laughs> Almost. But, uh, but um, and we went to college at the same place at the same time in San Diego, but we didn't know each other. You never met in college? No, it's you a big to... place. Big oh. school, and we had different social circles, I guess. Okay. But we met after college when he was the first ever salesman in Northern California for the brand called Massimo. I remember Massimo. Yeah, it was a great thing for a while. There was some, 
his name has been in the news lately for other reasons. Not great things. I have, I haven't heard. Uh, Varsity Blues. Is it ta- pay, pay for your kids to get into USC? Oh but, right. But yeah, yeah, yeah. Back then, it was a phenomenal brand and a phenomenon. And that, is that his last name? No, first name. Oh, it's his first name. Okay. But Pete was the first rep they had. You know, out of college, he, his, I think his brother-in-law or maybe his sister knew Mossmo himself, and hey, I'm looking to expand out of Southern California. You want to be my rep in San Francisco? Pete's like, sure. So we moved up north. Yeah. And at that time, I was out of college also, but not sure what I was going to do. It was before I got my first job as a Converse salesman. And so I was running my dad's local sporting goods store in the town I grew up in. And Pete rolled in with some Mosmo products and see if, to see if we wanted to buy it for our store. And I mean, how, old were you? how old were you? 23, maybe. Okay. All right. 24. No, got to be 24, 25, because it took more than four years to get out of college, unfortunately. Children but, still. Uh, and we both had much more hair back then <laughs> um, in fact Pete's was down to his shoulders which was odd I just can't imagine that's what I'm saying now that you know he's a handsome devil know, either way striking yeah. striking gentleman yeah. uh, no anyway so um, we just started talking when he was trying to sell me these volleyball shorts and t-shirts uh-huh. and uh, hey where'd you go to school Sandy me too Hey, were you at that Circle Jerks concert? Yeah, were you, you know, blah, blah, blah. We just started going back and forth. We were all at a lot of the same places at the same time. We just never knew each other. Far and out. And then, uh, you know, as that went on, I opened a boutique in San Francisco with my wife, and we started carrying that brand because it was like, it's so hard when you're opening a store to get brands to sell to you. And we're kind of that way, too. It's like, well, what other brands do you sell? Mm. Well, I don't have any yet because I'm not open yet. Well, let's, let's see how it plays out first because yeah. you don't want to put your brand in some kooky store right right yeah so when i first opened it when we first opened the shop we had mostly only massimo because pete was working for them when we got it and we've just been friends ever since you know and over the years we worked in various sometimes for the same companies sometimes our own gigs and other things but we just decided that you know around 2008 was big financial crisis and probably in in reality probably the worst time to start a brand selling <laughs> expensive products mm-hmm but in reality, in my opinion, it was the right time because then people were going to pay more attention to what they're buying. I think if you talk to people who work at Red Wing, they probably had their, and Alden, they probably had their best success during from 2008 to 2012 or something like that. Just because people wanted to buy quality and not replace stuff all the time and buy multiple of the same thing when they just want to buy one. I think there was a big movement back then too uh, towards the maker. Yeah, and no. the process in the hand. That's at least when things started catching on, yeah, no, catching my attention. Yes. Yeah. No doubt about that. And there was plenty of people that were really good at championing that. You yeah. Know, and, and it was a movement in a way. Yeah, it was. And, and um, I obviously appreciate that. We wouldn't probably be in existence if that wasn't the case. But it was still something we thought, you know, let's just, I have experience in denim. You have experience in sales. Let's, let's start our own thing. Yeah. You know, and um, I had missed being a denim I was out of it from like 2001 until then and I it was always a product that I really enjoyed being a part of why did you pick denim because when that boutique I talked about that I opened um with my wife back in 94 I think uh this was pre-internet you know and this woman came into the shop and said hey do you carry this local brand of jeans called Claudio Agnelli they're made they're made in San Francisco it's a local brand I go no I've never heard of it I'd like to Mm -hmm. of course so I've somehow found the number called the guy he said, come on down. We're on Petroa Hill. Went to another office warehouse. Kind of hit it off. Started buying his product. And then a year later, he's like, hey, I'm going to open my own store. and I have this new brand I want to start. Can you help me start my store? And I did. And 
six months later, he's like, hey, do you want to become my partner in this brand? And we did. And we, we were in existence until 2001. It was more of a young men and juniors brand where we sold like Urban Outfitters and PacSun and places like that. Mm-hmm. But we had another brand called Sutter's Gold at that time that was very much like Telesen started with just raw denim, one fit, salvage. Are they still around? No, no, no. The brand closed completely in 2001. And it Boy, they missed their time because well, it really came came around after the, that, I feel like. The brand Sutter's closed not because of bad business or whatever. It was just that my partner and his wife, who were obviously the majority majority owners of the company, had to sliver. Um, they wanted to leave the city, spend full time up in their house in Napa Valley and kind of semi-retire. And it was at that time too big of an operation at my age that time, especially to take it over and or buy it them out oh right so we just kind of let it go i see and you know that's life but i i learned a ton from the guy the guy was super knowledgeable about fabric fit sewing everything there's a lot to know so when we decided to start telson it was all the connections were there we, we're using the same factory that we started sutters with now <gasps> we got in bed with cone mills in a good way and very easily compared to most new brands because the salesman there who became a friend was still there from back then our pattern maker that we use today is the same one from back then so this is like a the a pre telison yeah that the, it was your trial run in, in a way. way i mean not only because everything that i learned but also the connections i made yeah you know like those people i just mentioned even our the guy that we buy all of our labels and hang tags and stuff was a guy I went to college with who started his own company about the same time we started telison so i my rolodex is minimal I have one supplier for this, one yeah. supplier for that. I don't, I don't want to complicate it. Yeah. And I want to become valuable to them. You know, I don't want to shop around for a label that costs me one cent less. Right. I don't care. I want to I want to help them out. And the the garment world is um it's it's how can I say this? It's very secretive in some ways. Like for example, when we were trying to make the when we were trying to find the uh lining for the deck jacket i talked to everyone no one would give me a straight answer about where they were getting that certain material which was uh it was an alpaca uh that took how long was that four months back and forth trying to figure that out come to find out is there's a distributor right here in yucca valley yeah but everything he's is mainly for toys and stuff. Yeah, it's it's not people don't use that very often for right. garments anymore. It's, no, I, I've always believed in, but people knew. That's yeah. what I'm saying. They, they just yeah. won't they won't reveal their sources most of the time, because, which I understand. But yeah, at the same time though, if because of the experience that I've had in the industry and Pete also in his side of it, um, we're always really willing to help people out if they seem genuine, younger guys maybe who didn't have the experience, and I'm not going to give them all our quote-unquote secrets but yeah. if they ask me a question I'll, I'll answer honestly you guys have that reputation you I, really do well I, being helpful i why not you know yeah. i mean it's like there's enough room out there for everybody as long as the people are nice people and they have integrity and they're not just trying to get you know this is not a get rich quick business <laughs> so if I, I tell that they're passionate about it yeah why not we've been burned a few times by people you know that we've helped we thought we knew them pretty well and next thing you know they leave town and they owe us three grand or something but um, part of taking the there's chance. been many more positive experiences than there have been negative like that. You know? It it's making a difference though. I've I've you know all my friends up here. We all wear this now, yeah. you know, and it's because you just don't go back. And it, yeah. then you get into the awareness of 
the manufacturing side of things and paying a living wage and the uh the thing that shocks me is how environmentally bad it is and yeah. when you when you if someone explains that to someone else who gives a shit like it i know you guys don't you don't how would i say market that aspect of it publicly but you explain it very well and when you do it's just like damn i can't think of anything else well like i said earlier um it's a fact that it takes a lot of water to grow cotton it yeah. takes water to process cotton we can't change that someday maybe that'll change right now we can't change that so what can we do that other companies in the mass denim market don't do is we cannot process our our genes with a ton of water and chemicals you know um there's so many stories out there um the one i like i love to tell because people don't know this but when you see a pair of jeans where the outside of the leg is still dark blue and the thigh and the back of the calf which is odd and the knee or whatever is white that's just not, like any pair you see in Beverly Hills. Yeah. <laughs> but that's not bleach that does that. Bleach would be, quote unquote, relatively okay in the big picture, I guess. But bleach would also destroy the fibers to get it that white. So it's not bleach. It's this. Right. You'd have giant holes. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, um, it's this chemical compound called potassium permanganate, and it's toxic to humans. So if it's being used in a factory in, a, in let's say, Los Angeles or Japan, for example, it's going to be isolated room, excellent ventilation. The worker is going to be wearing eye coverings and a respirator. That's how toxic it is. Of course, in L.A. or Japan or Italy, they don't do a lot of that treatment because it's cheesy. So a lot of that's not happening uh, in those countries. It's happening in other places where it's all about fast fashion and cheap, cheap, cheap. And workers there are not wearing respirators and they're not in an enclosed space and are well in ventilated space. They're wearing. I've seen videos where they're wearing like a bandana over their nose. It's doing nothing for them. Oh okay, so people are dying, maybe not right then, but eventually they're dying prematurely just so people can have fake genes, fake, you know, distressed genes. It's just absurd when you think about it. It's more absurd. It was excusable at one point when we didn't understand the chemicals we were using. Not excusable, it was lazy. But now that we know, it's it's pretty much unexcusable. It, it's just... You know, but again, it's 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 people wanting to not put the work in and seeing a trend. And see, that's the thing. Like Pete and I don't like. There's a point in time in our history as a brand, 13 years plus now, where I would say that set raw salvage denim was a trend. But when I say that, I'm talking for a micro part of the population, because of the way it's made and how it's made, the price puts it out of being a major trend, of course. Yeah. But. Um, to me, it's not a trendy product, even when it's quote unquote a trend in certain markets, because it's the way things have always been done up until like the '60s and seven, mostly the '70s. So it's it's just an old way of doing things. That's why when people say, it's, "Are you a heritage brand?" Like, the only thing heritage to me is that the way we make it and the way the fabric's made. Why did things change right around then? Was it just margins and and profits and. No, because like I said earlier, the margins all along the way are the same. Oh, right, it, yeah. Percentage-wise. Yeah. It's just that this all costs more. Making it in San Francisco costs. Yeah. Our cut and sew cost is out, is way higher than probably anywhere else. Yeah. Because the factory has longtime employees that they have a particular wage they need to live in San Francisco. You know, and I'm fine. I'm okay with that. I mean, we could make our, like, we could make our jeans. Because the factory for a brand like ours, 
What they do is to provide the cutting, the sewing, and the thread, but the thread is to our spec. We provide everything else, the fabric, the pocketing, the buttons, the rivets, the burrs, the labels, everything, mm-hmm. the leather patch. So what they're doing is mostly labor and not sourcing the materials. And that labor part, the cutting and sewing, would be 20 to 25% less in Los Angeles than San Francisco. Mm. But we're here. We're there. You yeah. know, it's like I like to be able, if something comes up, to tell them I'll be there in 25 minutes rather than have to get on a Zoom with somebody or have them FedEx something to me. Yeah, there's something very valuable. But it's even that. more important than that, though, to me, is that it's them. I've known these people since 93. Yeah. You know, when the when the woman that owns the factory now, when they first started back in the 80s, it was father and daughter with two sewing machines. And wow. And a nice fact thing going, but they're still the last remaining blue jeans factory in the home of blue jeans. It just drives me. You know, and so, again, we're a small company, but all we can do is support them as much as we can. I don't think people understand how small you guys are. What, two people? It's two people. Yeah. Two people. That's pretty small. When I found that right now out... It's one, right now it's one person because I'm down here. Right. <laughs> so you're sitting here with me. <laughs> but when I found that out, I could not... That I just... I couldn't see how that was possible. But being to your, uh, your warehouse, I get it now. I see your structure. Yeah, I mean, Pete and I don't... People ask us... You know, are you guys designers? I'm like, well, everything that we have in our line, we've designed, but not from the, I mean, we're not saying that with white, white pads and markers saying, let's draw this shirt and have it look like this. Right. You know, we're, we're taking something that we have or something we designed before and changing things up, whether it be a pocket or fit or whatever. Like no one's reinventing the wheel in this world. We're not, you know, high fashion. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I guess, yes, technically speaking, we design the stuff, but we're, we're such a core driven brand, right? So we have seven fits for men. Uh, that's it in jeans. Many of them are available in black and also three weights of raw denim. Some are only available in one raw denim weight. But the fact is, is that that's, you take that and like our jean jacket or, or like our type three or trucker jean jacket and a few other core items like our topper shirt, that's like, we're a bell curve. That's like 80% of our business. Yeah. So there's, you know, things like the garment dye coveralls and we do some socks or a beanie here and there, or whatever, other shirts. But those are add-ons. The reason we have existed so long, I think, is because as I like to shop, once I find something I like, I want to get it again a couple of years later. And unfortunately, that's rare. It is. You know? And for me and Pete, that's really important. And I know we, that's one of the reasons we have so many repeat customers and a lot of our retailers have repeat customers is because I think a lot of guys like that. You know, they, they, they've got a pair of jeans, they like them, they might want to get a second pair right away or they might want to wait until they need a new pair a year, year and a half later, two years later, and they want to get the same thing. At a certain level of maturity, you kind of know. You don't need to you don't need to fish around for your look or your style anymore. You've, you've established that. Yeah, and I mean, people used to mock, you know, Steve Jobs for wearing his jeans and his black mock turtleneck long sleeve t-shirt every day but right. actually a uniform is kind of nice it really is you know and you can set your own uniform whatever that may be and it doesn't be the only one pair of you know one style of jean one shirt but i like less like i said earlier minimalism i like less stuff but good stuff and so i certainly have my uniform no exactly and I mean, it's it's just, e- it's, it's, it's just flawless easier. it's easier it can go anywhere yeah and it can work with me yeah it can like i can like chill in it go to the bar and it feel fine it's easier it's Life's easier. easier that way. It's not complicated. It's easier. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I don't I don't think I could go back to uh 
fishing around again yeah. for another cut or another look. It's like. No, and the other thing about the way we run our business, like I said, it's mostly core. It's kind of a bell curve with those core denim products and maybe a denim shirt here and there. But um, a lot of those fabric suppliers we work with, they're like, well, what season are you designing right now? I go, we don't, we're not designing a season. Yeah. When's this fabric available? Oh, it's available in a month. Okay, give me some sample yardage or I'll buy some sample yardage. We'll make a sample. We'll shrink test it. Okay, if it looks good and we like it, I'll order the bulk. When's it available? Uh, we can ship it in three months. Okay. Then we receive it three months later. It takes t- six to eight weeks to make it. Then we put it out there. It might be a long sleeve shirt in July. Who cares? <laughs> Roll up the sleeves. Yeah. You know, because we'll have that same thing um, three months from now if you think you need to wait till it gets colder. You know? Yeah. I mean, it's not, it's just not about um, seasonality. I don't like products that, I mean, certainly we sell more jeans in certain times of the year than others because maybe it's in people's minds too hot Yeah. to buy, buy this kind of product. But I don't want to have something in the line that only has a third 90 day selling life. Yeah. You know? I never, I've never understood. I thought that was always kind of the fucking wacky part about fashion too. It is. Is they come up with like a narrative and a fabric and a, and a thing depending on a season and they, they form this, this uh, story around it. And I'm like, wow, you really, you're really grasping at straws here to make this interesting. No, I mean. And sell know, more shit you don't need. In, in, in the career in Pete, that Pete and I had before Tellison, whether mine was in denim for a while, but also in sales of Converse and some clothing brands, and Pete was in clothing sales. We both worked for brands that every three months they would come up with a new collection. They'd have a spring, a summer, yeah, a fall, and a yeah. winter collection. It was like, how is it even possible to get that all get all that done? Let alone, there's zero chance that 100 percent of that stuff's going to sell. Yeah, you might sell 20 percent of it. So why, not why do they do down? that? Because it's kind of like that whole thing, like just throw on the shit on the wall and see what sticks. Yeah. But if you know your customer well enough and you do enough research, you know your brand and where you stand in the industry, you should be able to do that yourself. I just feel like it confuses people. They're like, yeah. should I be wearing this right now? Is and it then, like- well, you know what? Also, there's this mentality that, especially when you're dealing with bigger retailers, because the bigger buyers, let's say you're dealing with, like I've sold product for other brands to department stores, you know, and the buyer knows they have you by the nuts. Because they know that they're going to give you an order that's going to be 25% of your commission for the year. Right. Just for one delivery. Yeah. So they love to say no to things. Not only do they have power. It's a little pen, power trip. But it's a power trip to say, oh, no, that, I don't like that. Take this. Take I've that seen away. that. I've seen that you in know? person. Yeah. Where in reality, it'd be more efficient for everybody if you if the brand just whittled everything down to a core collection of things plus a little bit of other thing based on whatever they see in the market or their customers are asking for. And just stop the waste, you know? I mean, it's just unbelievable how much stuff gets made and never made. Like samples get made and the product never gets made. Right. Or if the timing is wrong. Is that what a is that what a uh, outlet store is? Hey, exactly. <laughs> but that's what outlet stores started for, right? But uh, now all these big retailers that have outlet stores, they make product for their outlet stores. It they make be, shitty shit for an outlet store. <laughs> yeah, like Gap will have like Gap Outlet brand in their outlet stores. It used to be whatever didn't sell the Gap, yeah. like through three selling cycles. 30% off, 50% off, 70% off. All right, get it out of the store and put it in the outlet. Yeah. Now it's like they make product for the outlet stores. It became its own. It's own. its own animal. It's a joke. I mean, you know, it's just all stuff that people don't need. Yeah. You know, and I've had this long belief, and I don't know if people agree with me on this or not, but I always believe, because I did spend six months at Gap headquarters making men's denim before I left because I couldn't handle the corpo nature of it, you know, um, after, when I had when the other brand closed. 
Uh-huh. I was like, oh, I want to stay in Denham. Here I am in San Francisco. I applied at Levi. They never called me. Gap did, which was weird. Um, anyway, so I was there for six months. And after being there for a few months, I was like, this is not a clothing company. It's a real estate company. Interesting. Because they'll open a store a mile from another one of their stores, Franchise. which you wouldn't do if you're thinking, but they do it because they don't want their competitor to get that location. Oh. You know? And so these are real estate companies. Oh. They're not, I mean, they're obviously making clothing, but the, it's like the, the clothing is just the vehicle for their real estate. Right. In my opinion. Again, I could be wrong, but I've just seen it happen so many times. You know, yes. why are there so many dollar stores everywhere? Why are there so many mattress firm stores everywhere? It's got to be about something else. It can't just be about product because there's no way they can survive on their own. Yeah. And unfortunately, public companies, um, it seems like the only way they get props from Wall Street is by opening more stores. It's not about are you making money or is, are your stores that have been open for, you know, same store sales good. It's like, did how many more stores did you open? It's your many, franchise numbers. Yeah. Did you expand your store count? You know, and. So that's why, you know, there's all these empty retailers. Even prior to the pandemic, there was all these empty storefronts everywhere and malls are dying because there was too much of it to begin with. And it's impossible for them to always survive. There's a town north of us in the wine country of Sonoma called Santa Rosa. It's got uh, maybe a population of 120,000 people. I don't know if there's both still there. There used to be two Macy's in town. In a town of 120,000. Is that necessary no <laughs> but why the second one come about probably because a de- developer said hey we're opening a mall two miles away and if you don't want this to be a i don't know one of their competitors jc penny or whatever it may be put a store here too okay what a wild game because how many let's say how many gap stores actually make money yeah they're one on pal and market in san francisco flagship i'm sure does probably the one in fifth avenue new york does but does the third one in a town of 100,000 people in the middle of no, you know. They couldn't do it without malls. I right. don't think they could do it without malls. Cause... No, but, you know, it's like, it's just not sustainable, no. obviously, as you see more and more of these stores closing, you know. I... And it's all marketing. Like, their 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 campaigns used to be interesting, and, like, they had a brand look and feel, but they've they've... They've kind of lost it, I feel like. I don't want to go off on a tangent about Gap right now, but I will say this. When they were successful in <laughs> growing... I wish you would. <laughs> when they were successful in growing is when they were doing what you were talking about, which they had very cohesive and recognizable marketing and advertising strategy. Yeah. They had the ability to get people in the door to buy khaki pants and shorts in four or five different colors. And that fit. was their thing. Like they the had khaki and white. Pocket, pocket tees in 20 colors. Yeah. Underwear, socks, sweatshirts, like just core product, basic kind of everyday stuff. The moment that they start trying to chase fashion is the beginning of the end, in my opinion, because they could compete with their competitors in the fast fashion world like Zara and H&M, which own their own mills, so they make their own fabric. Then they cut and sew it themselves and they put it in their stores, whereas Gap farms everything out. And so like someone like Zara or H&M, for example, probably more like Zara, especially in women's fashion, they can see something, get the fabric made, get it cut and sewn and have it in their store in a couple months. Gap takes like almost a year. It's too big. Right. You know what I mean? And so that's not sustainable. Meanwhile, a bigger brand than Gap now, even when you take all the Gap divisions, Banana, Old Navy, Gap, a bigger one than them now is Uniqlo from Japan. And what do they do? They do exactly what Gap used to do. You can go to Uniqlo and get underwear, socks. socks. Yeah. That's what they're good for. Core product. They have cashmere poly or, you know, cashmere acrylic sweaters, 
V-neck, crew neck, and 40 colors year round. So they like they've taken that guy or women's that men's or women's business that just wanted to find a reliable place for just core basic stuff, and took it. And that's why they're bigger than Gap now. And it it's mind blowing that that no one saw that happening when it was happening and tried to get back to the way they used to do things. So they were successful. Well, you know, at they, least you did. Well, I know, but who am I? <laughs> yeah. You know, but I mean they. But I mean they. Um, you know, Gap started with one dude that was in the real estate business and his wife opening a Levi's slash record store in San Francisco. That's how that started? Yeah. It started in San Francisco with a husband and wife who were, I think they were both in real estate, or at least he was, and he had some money, and he's he wanted to open a Levi's slash record store back in the six, late 60s. Uh-huh. And his friends advised him, oh, put it near you know this lo- neighborhood because it's close to SF State and SF City College. It'll be college students. And he sold Levi's and records, and that's it. And then eventually opened a few more that. stores and then stopped selling the records because they didn't make much money on it. But they were le- selling tons of Levi's. But then um, this, there was some provision in U.S. business where you couldn't uh, use loss leaders, and that went away. And so then their competitors that sold Levi's started saying, hey, come in and get a pair of 501s for, you know, half of what these guys are selling it for, hoping that they would go in and buy some shoes and all this. And this guy got screwed, the guy that started Gap. And by this time, they had multiple locations because they're getting cut on price. But they couldn't do that loss leader thing because all they sold was Levi's. Right. So that's when they started making their own brand. They had to. They went private label. They were like the first. It was smart. They said, fuck this. Okay, we're going to make our own brand. And they became Gap only brand. I had no idea that's how that started. And then it just started growing, and then this dude who's a legend in... Um, they did, did they... I mean, was it like old records and new and used Levi's, no, or was I, it just all... I was a... Even though, even at my age, I was a child back then, so I okay. don't remember per se. But I think it was just Levi's products, like new products, yeah. and records, like a record store, like half pants and uh-huh. jackets and half vinyl, you know? Um, and they grew like crazy, you know? And they've set the world on fire. Sure did. And then it get, then it became too big. Like everything, you yeah, know, does that. Um, but they had a genius merchandising guy who then went on uh, to buy part of, or maybe fully buy, or at least most of J. Crew. But they're having tough times now, you know. But the guy was genius at building Gap. No, their marketing was it was dead it was, on. It was brilliant. And it's funny because now I've seen some ads recently on TV that kind of remind me of their old ads. And I, you know, once they whittle down their real estate and get it back to a manageable number where it's only locations that are making money, or at least not losing money, when they can get out of all these leases that they've signed around the world, then maybe they can go back to their core business and just be smaller, with less of a footprint, but still, but then make money actually and be successful. Have you guys ever thought about opening a, a brick and mortar? Well, fortunately, I, you know, I grew up in it. My dad had a sporting store from the time I was like 12 or 13 in my hometown and that was great, but I saw how that's difficult. Yeah, you know, and I have a lot of respect for retailers. You know, it's a really tough business. Um, you're, it's a, it's tough because who's your customer? Once you figure that out, okay, how can I staff this with people that actually give a crap? Yeah, that's the hard part. And am I ever gonna be comfortable not like taking a weekend off when that's our busiest time? But my our family wants to go on vacation. But can I trust the people that are running my store so they don't steal shit from me and? And they actually provide good service. You know, that's, I mean, to me, the hardest part, once you, you feel like you want to open a store and you have a design aesthetic for the store and a service level you want to provide and the products you want to provide, 
hardest part is the staff. You know, that's yeah. the hardest part. Finding someone, finding someone you trust and that gives a shit. Exactly, and yeah. that's the case of any business, I suppose, right? Like if you have a, a bar, you just hope that that bartender steals less than the one you, guy you had before. Yeah. You know, but but so anyway, to answer your question, um, I had a boutique in San Francisco, like I've mentioned, in the '90s for four years, and it was a great experience learning wise. But when the time came to sign another lease, forget about it. You know, it was just too much. At a small level like that. Did you have the intuition of the internet and online kind of sales that was, direct to consumer? That was pre then, you know. And uh, but from, but from the beginning of uh, of Telson, Pete and I have always loved the person that has the balls to open a retail store and does yeah. a good job at it. And there are some great retailers out there. It's just hard. It's a really difficult business. So to answer your question. Um, we would, the only reason the only reason we won't have a Telson store somewhere is that it would be the only place in the world where you could see everything we make because even our best customers in the world whether in Europe or US or Japan they carry a sliver of what we make because they have other brands they carry yeah and I, I appreciate that you know um, so it, it would be nice to have a place where we could just you know San Francisco is a big tourist town it's like hey I'm coming to San Francisco I get emails all the time hey I'm coming to San Francisco do you have a shop no but uh, oh, uh, you can go here. They have some of our stuff. Or if you want to come to our studio, you can come by, I guess. But, you know, like, yeah. And people do, and that's fine. Um, there was a point in time in Portland and in LA and in San Francisco, we had a shop and shop in the Tanner Goods stores. And that was fantastic. It was great for them because we filled their store, but we owned the product. Mm. They sold it, and then we would just, you know, 50 50, whatever it sold for. Yeah. So they had a wall full of clothes that they didn't have to pay for. We had a place to send people to that had almost everything we made. And I looked at it like this. It could sit in a box in our studio in Sausalito or it could be in a wall in a store there. And now we have a place to send people. Hey, I'm from Denmark. I'm coming to San Francisco on vacation. Do you have a place I can see your line? Yeah, go to the Tanner Goods store. Even if they don't get anything, then at least they have a reference to fit and yes, exactly. like how everything works, exactly. merchandises together. Exactly. And also then Tanner Goods benefited from it, I would think, because if they came in specifically because we sent them there to look at our product, and they might buy a belt or a wallet because it's there. Yeah. And it goes really well together and there's context. I get emails a lot about where I can try things on in yeah. L.A. Yeah, it's tough because, yeah. you know, I I'll, I do I get the same emails, you know, and it's like, try here, but they have two fits yeah, and one fabric each, you know, and that's, we're happy to have it, but, you know, it's not everything. Um, so that's the hard part, you know, but retail is really tough, you know, um, obviously over the last year, we found around the world that um, whether it be in Switzerland or Italy or the UK or Japan or LA or New York, if you didn't have a web presence and a pretty good web business, prior to 2020 it was gonna be really tough on you you know yeah and fortunately the ones that did have that they're they survived you almost need if you're gonna do retail now it's gotta be an experience it's gotta be something beyond just trying something on like i I mean look I've, i've said this for years and i've learned it from not only my own experience of having a brand or having my own store prior to that in san francisco but as we travel around the world, whether it be Japan or Europe or here, New York, wherever, the best stores in any category weren't the ones that just sold X. In this case, clothing for men. Because that if that's all you sell, then the only people that are going to walk in the door are looking for clothing for men. But if you have a focus on clothing for men, but you have a cool selection of books, 
Yeah. It's kind of like when I talk to you about your website. Like, find your favorite candle maker that's local and put some of your yeah. candles on your website just to help her out or him out, but also to have a, something else for people to buy that's not one of your photos or a pair of jeans or your book. Yeah. Because they dig you and they dig your aesthetic and they want to help you and support you, right? Well, and I have people that I can really bring in and help too. Yeah. You know, like that that tool bag yeah. right there sitting on the shelf. Um, I haven't got to that yet, but I'm hoping to do exactly what you said. My friend makes these out of his garage yeah. by hand. Yeah, so you'll get some more eyeballs on it. And yeah. You'll both benefit from it. And, and that's the thing. So the better retailers that I see that sell our product around the world also have an espresso machine and they offer their customer, hey, would you like yeah. coffee? Why? Because it's nice service, but also maybe they'll spend more time there. And it just creates more of a welcoming environment. But they also have a cool book that's their favorite book. Because at one point, especially if it's a repeat customer into your store, that means they not only love the service, but they trust your aesthetic and your style. And how nice for a guy who doesn't have the time or the desire or the ability, let's say, to ha- to pick things out that he's going to dig. But he likes that guy's style that owns the shop or her style that works there or whatever. Yeah. Hey, what's new? Oh, we just got this great tool bag in. Or we got this... I don't know. I, I love this candle. It smells great. And this really cool lady in Amsterdam makes them. And now here we are in Tokyo and we have them here. Yeah. Know? So there's more than, so now you have that stuff in the window and your clothing and someone's walking by on their way to a friend's house for dinner and they forgot to get a bottle of wine or flowers. I'm like, oh shit. Almost <laughs> to their house. Oh, oh, that's a cool book. They, they would dig that. Or that's a cool candle or whatever the thing may be. Yeah. I'll get that for them. You know, so you have various price points and various reasons for people walking in the door. Those are the kind of retailers that kick ass in my opinion I have always wanted to combine a motorcycle shop and a bookstore yeah. I thought it was the most interesting juxtaposition yeah. um, not to say that like bikers don't read yeah. or whatever but I think that uh, you know it's two different crowds but they're still looking for a journey yeah you know, and no and look there's can people- you imagine like people sitting around in like a little um, a shop and then you know a cafe and people are, are reading yeah no and, <laughs> and also you know I mean there's plenty of people who appreciate the motorcycle world but don't live it like you do yeah. because they don't or can't, but they appreciate it. And they, they, they're stoked on the aesthetic and the design of the bikes themselves or the kind of people that build You can them. really appreciate it from any angle. Right, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And as long as it's heartfelt and real and not just someone trying to jump on the bandwagon for whatever reason, then bring them in, you know? Yeah. Like it's – because like Pete and, I, Pete and I always talk about how – and it kind of gets back to that one guy at a time thing. Like the world's a big place, you know, and what we consider to be a successful product in reality is not in the big picture. But to us it is because we dig it and we like the kind of people that also appreciate it. And to us, that's success. But you have built a culture even without a, even out of, of a retail space and everything. There are people who, who do look to you guys as a model. I, I don't think. get it. I mean, I appreciate that, but it's like, I guess, you know what? You know why? I'll explain it to you right now. It's the underdog story, and it's also, it's Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. It was like, you guys came in guns blazing and, and made something real, and people want to, they want to support that. I appreciate that tremendously. I will say, though, that because Pete and I are both definitely not smart, smart enough <laughs> to have had that as a plan. We didn't have a plan. You right. know, it was like, let's just make product we're proud of. Hopefully other people will dig it. Yeah. It um, seems like a pretty good plan. And, you know, let's just stand behind it and bring people in as we can that we trust and admire and also like. But believe me, neither one of us are smart enough to have had this be a step-by-step plan because that shit doesn't work. <laughs> it doesn't work, you know. Well, you had me fooled. That, that's because it was it was just natural. Like it was just life, you know. It wasn't it wasn't um, 
like for instance, some of the things like the names of some of our products, they mean a lot to me and Pete and maybe people that know what they are, but we don't really talk about them too much. Yeah. You know, uh, some all the clash see, references. Yeah. I mean, and... some people see that and they're like, Oh cool. That's a, that's the name of the drummer for the clash. I yeah. think very esoteric, but they don't, most people probably don't know they or give a shit, but that whole moment in time, Pete and I are the same age, like I said, you know, and that whole moment in time when punk started was exactly what we needed in our life at the time. And so it was super influ- influential to us. And I'd rather be my exact age than five years under or five years older because we would have missed that moment. Yeah. That zenith of that taking off and becoming something that was so new and so important to our beliefs about a lot of things. But that's and, a great marketing decision because it has it has such power to you. It to us. Like yeah. I said, I don't think most people know or give a shit, but to us, it means a lot. And But when you do meet someone who does understand it, how powerful of a thing oh, yeah. is that? Yeah. Those are the people. Right. That those, those are I your mean, people. Like, I, I love anybody who like, likes our product, but if they know the backstory or the history or the why, why things are called a certain thing or whatever, even better. Yeah. You know? But it, What a little Easter egg for them, though. Yeah. I mean... There are people who discover it later on, too. You know, you might notice when you see the care label of your jacket that's coming up, there'll be a little reference to something in there that you normally don't find on garment labels. And hopefully people, people will see it. And if they don't know about it, they'll they'll check it out and hopefully they'll dig it. And if they don't, move on. Dude, you, know? you blew my mind. I'm excited about that. But you blew my mind today showing me the tag I had no idea was in my own jeans. Yeah, yeah. You got you to gotta look. Uh, I'll leave that. Yeah, I'll leave we'll, that little Easter that egg around. for that the way that I did because it's really fun. Well, I mean, I know you got to go, Tony. How long have we gone? Oh, we've gone an hour, just about an hour exactly, I think. Which is, which is perfect. Great, man. All right. Well, I can't thank you enough, and it's been one of the most meaningful ten years of getting here, and I don't know where we're all going, but I fucking love it. The feeling is mutual, dude, and. For everybody out there who has not seen it, check out Tell Us Some Stories, Meet Todd. Yeah, that's, that was a while that ago. That was way back, and yeah. it's a great story. Um, yeah. Great to be with you and all your people out here and eat delicious cake. Yeah, we'll give made my, right over there. my wife a shout out there. All right, buddy. Adios, Good, muchachos. Good to see you. Adios. Muchachos. How about that? I could have talked for hours. I could. I really can talk for hours. Um, with incredibly interesting people or knowledgeable people like Tony. I've learned a lot over the years just through listening. So thank you, Tony, for your time. I really enjoyed having you and Ann out here in the desert. So did Nick. I hope you enjoyed the pizza and the cake. We can't wait to have you guys back. I think it'd be really interesting to get you and Pete in here at the same time if that's ever possible for two of you to step away from your business at the same time. I know it's not, but it would be entertaining nonetheless. I think the next thing what will happen, I'll probably head up north to see the two of you. In fact, this weekend I am riding up north. I'm going to leave here on Sunday and try and get up to as far as maybe Leggett, uh, short, uh, uh, what is that town? Gosh, uh, Westport, right where the one cuts over to the 101, somewhere up there by the Redwoods. I think that's still safe fire country right now. But that's, I've decided to take a ride this weekend. <clears throat> so maybe I'll stop through. 
or the next time anyway I'll bring Nick and we'll enjoy some some North Country California North Country I think I'll leave you guys with a couple words from my book it seems appropriate too far gone there is a there is a letter in here that is bound between the pages that I wrote back to Pete uh, when his family took me in for Christmas when I was on the road. And uh, it's, uh, it's a little account of a, a story I had at a restaurant down in your neck of the woods. So here we go. From Too Far Gone. <clears throat> Dear Pete, this holiday was extra special because of your generosity. Your family is absolutely wonderful. Please thank them for accommodating a shabby nomad like myself. I say shabby because the strangest thing happened to me last night. I guess you could call it a case of mistaken identity. After leaving town yesterday, all commerce seemed to cease, and I had a hard time finding any open establishment. A fisherman told me about a joint up the road, and eventually I found it well after dark. It was pretty cold, so by the time I got there, I had piled on nearly every layer of clothing I had with me. The restaurant was charming. An old building, candle-lit with dark-stained wood walls and tables. The owner, as far as I could tell, a fragile older man, was working the bar. It felt classy, and the food was delicious, Polish, um, I believe. I looked thoroughly out of place, sitting there in the corner with all of my hobo baggage. <laughs> As I was eating um, a soft arrangement of meat and potatoes, a sharp-looking young couple entered and awkwardly passed my table on their way to the bar. The man shot me an alarming glance, as if to say, Holy shit, what are you doing here? I could understand taking a second look at a character like myself sitting in a scene like this, but the level of intensity on this guy's glance suggested that something was, in his opinion, out of place. I continued eating, pretending not to notice the couple in their whispered discussion, it became awkward, and I knew that eventually he would approach me to settle their debate. So once I pushed away my empty plate, the man turned around and asked me, excuse me, do I know you? I told him that wasn't likely, and I explained a bit about where I was from and what I was up to. He considered it a moment and said, You're not going to believe this, but I mistook you for a homeless schizophrenic man who lives near here. He rushed to explain that the man was a local celebrity of sorts and could pass as my twin brother. In fact, the young couple both worked as journalists for the local paper and had written a story about the man. <clears throat> when they walked in and saw me there with all my gear, they thought, he had cut his hair, got out of the city, and somehow was enjoying a cozy dinner alone at a restaurant. <laughs> I laughed pretty hard. 
It wasn't the first time I'd been assumed homeless on this trek. And so I tried to explain the distinction between homeless and home free. And that seemed to settle their debate. Thank you again for your hospitality, Pete. In spite of my shabby condition. I'm very grateful to know you. Thanks for tuning in, ladies and gentlemen. Y'all be safe out there.